Today I get the treat of talking to you about Pillars of Eternity 2, the best CRPG ever made in my opinion. Um, I'm going to stop right here. If you haven't played this game and you're interested in RPGs, Western RPGs, or CRPGs, allow me to quietly recommend that you go pick this game up and play it. I wasn't exaggerating. This game managed to eke out Divinity Original Sin 2 as my favorite CRPG of all time on the basis of the game itself. DOS 2 is actually still technically higher, in my opinion, for one reason only. Co-op. Proper main campaign co-op. So, those two still sit at the top, though. And that should say something. Although, on the other hand, if I'm being completely honest, I know a lot of you... Uh, I'm saying that wrong. I know my opinions on CRPGs don't really agree with a lot of people's. I don't think Fallout 1 or 2 has aged particularly well. I didn't care for Pillars of Eternity 1 all that much, etc., etc. So, grain of salt. But I still highly recommend this game. Because if I was to describe it, I would say it is Pillars of Eternity 1, but better in every single way. <clears throat> In fact, I'm just going to run through the gameplay section, because here's the thing. As much as I enjoy the story of this game, I have little to say about the gameplay. But what I have to say is universally positive. That's not true. Almost universally positive. It still has some of the flaws of being an Infinity Engine game. Uh, there are several dungeons, for example, where it's really hard to see what the heck you're doing just because of the fact that the background actually blurs with the actual graphic of the dungeon. I don't mean, like, having a torch. I mean just literally seeing what's on the screen is difficult to do. Um, there's some artifact issues because it's the Infinity Engine. There's only so much you can do with that. But <clears throat> let's see. I, I made a list here. Let's see. We've got lots and lots and lots and lots of options. The ability to craft your own save game or import it from the previous game and having it actually matter. A uh, massive amount of All Roads Lead to Rome quest design and generally amazing quest design across the board, which also has a lot of very, uh, a lot of features and built in concepts to prevent or even remove entire entirely the very concept of backtracking. Lots of consequences, which also carry forward both on the first game and the second game. The fact that this game has tons of customization in terms of your build and your setup. Uh, the fact that it has the ship. Uh, Pax has played this game, too, quick aside. And I asked him, just as a funny thing, all right, what was your favorite thing of PoE 2? And his response was the ship. It's kind of easy to see why. I really love the ship gameplay. Uh... The fact that there's no time limit on what you're doing, unless you choose the option to do so. Did I mention, in addition to the many options, there's also tons of difficulty options and optional bonus things you can do to make the game even harder in very specific ways. Uh, buffing up the animals, making it so that food bonuses are worse, making it so that you don't heal out of combat, just all sorts of little specific options like that. Lovely, lovely stuff. The fact that you can retarget casting without recasting, which is more, which is, I, I mentioned that one because it's one of the smaller changes, but there's a ton of very small quality of life changes in this game, which really helped to elevate it for me. Um, uh, the, a lot of the, the game's abilities and functions and just kind of mechanics are built around per encounter rather than per rest, although there's an option to shift it to per rest. Uh, the fact that they use the wounds slash injury system instead of the health endurance system, which is awesome. Uh, I mentioned the lack of backtracking already, but it deserves to be repeated because that's very important for another point. Now, I'm saving this point for last because, in my opinion, this is the thing this game does that really pushed it above everything else except for DOS 2. There's no trash problem. Now, I'm going to talk about this for a bit.
I could spend some time discussing all the things I just discussed. Uh, I actually did a full premiere run of this game if you want to see like my actual pluses and minuses of it. If anything, I feel like I should give more pluses to it in hindsight, but that's neither here nor there. <clears throat> but having having gone through this game again, the trash problem is a very common problem when it comes to game design. It's in my it is my opinion that the trash problem has its roots in older game design, and as such, it is an artifact of game design. Uh, in older JRPGs and Western RPGs, which are you know based off of like the old Dragon Quests and Yeez games, or based on Dungeons and Dragons and the other side of things, the the general idea was that the encounters were a lot of the gameplay, and therefore they're like, well, we need lots of them, and this is in addition to the fact that. Well, in the older days, and honestly, this is still kind of a thing, but especially in the NES era and the early PC era, video games are supposed to be large. You know, you're plopping down 90 bucks for a video game, right? You remember when video games were 90 bucks each? And, or less, sometimes they were 30, sometimes they were 50, there was no standard. But you plop down a large amount of money for a video game, you need it to have a return on investment. You don't want a 20-minute game, even though a lot of those games were like 20 to 30 minutes or maybe an hour or two. So one of the most common things to do was have the trash problem, and that would flesh out the game. And by flesh out, I mean the exact opposite of flesh out. It would pad it out. It would make the game much longer without actually adding any depth or anything good. The trash problem, if I haven't explained this properly yet, is when you have a whole lot of trash. Now, on the off chance you don't know what I'm talking about. Trash is the non-significant encounters. Now, there's a lot of, I say that that way because some people define trash as anything that's not a boss. I don't agree with that because there's plenty of ways to have a significant encounter without it actually being a boss. A big boss, an end boss, an optional boss, a super optional boss. You know, there's, there's variances here. But trash is, you're wandering around the overworld, and there's an encounter. That's a trash fight. Now, trash fights have their own purpose and place in existing in games like these. I'm not saying we should get rid of trash entirely, although, actually, I kind of do think we should do that. But I'm not saying that that's mandatory. I, I, wouldn't get, I wouldn't ding a game for having trash. But I do ding a lot of games for having too much trash. That's the trash problem. When there's just too many encounters. How many games can you think of? Seriously, honest question, where it's like, okay, encounter, 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 encounter. Okay, the next thing of actual note comes up, right? I know this doesn't bother everyone as much as it bothers me, but I stand firm in my opinion that this is basically just straight-up padding. Uh, I do prefer it when a game that has actual random encounters allows you to, you know, adjust a slider to allow you to see how many of them you encounter. Bravely Default comes to mind. But when it comes to CRPGs like this... I tend to feel like, well, too much trash just makes the game slog. It actually kind of runs into the factory syndrome as well, which is a related but actually separate problem, which this game bypasses entirely. So, to reiterate, in case I didn't say this clearly, this might be the only game, the only CRPG ever, that in my opinion has no trash problem. That is extremely impressive to me. I, I, there might be one I'm not thinking of off the top of my head, but for the most part, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure that is true. Even if you blur, blur the definition of CRPGs into things like uh, Dragon Age Origins or KOTOR or Neverwinter Nights, I would still argue that those games have a bit of a trash problem, especially when you go to the the under uh, the deep roads in Dragon Age. 
So this game just doesn't have that problem. And it designs its power progression curve and its difficulty curve such that it's okay. See, this is the other reason, forgive me for keeping talking about this, but this is such a unique thing. This is so noteworthy. The problem is most people say, oh, well, you need trash. How are you going to level up otherwise? And I always just stare at people who say that. It's like, but you... The only thing that determines... It is 100% in the designer's control exactly when and how you level up. They have the ability to guide and gate your experience and your general power progression what I usually refer to as the power progression curve. This is aside from the fact that this game, in addition to its many wonderful options, also has the option to sync everything to your level. So you could just always be at the level of the encounters you're fighting. That's, that's, that's a neat little option. I wouldn't do it. That sounds terrible to me. But the fact that it's an option is awesome. Anyways, ignoring that, doing quests gets you experience. You know, interacting with people, accomplishing little side objectives, defeating the significant encounters. All of these things give you experience. Thus, all they have to do is design encounters to give you enough experience to relatively equate to how much they feel you should level up as you go through the game. What I'm trying to say here is that the mentality that trash is the only way to level is a little outdated and also, frankly, wrong. Now, you might say, well, hang on, what if I want to go grind for a bit to be higher level for a section? I'll give you that. The removal of the trash problem means there's no real way to just go and grind for a while. I don't think that's a bad thing, personally. I stand by the plus, so to speak. Because in this case, your option would be to go do another quest, basically. Go do a lower level quest and get a little more experience and then come back and do the one you're having trouble with. That would be the option here, basically. Instead of... So forgive me for gushing, I really enjoyed this game. Enjoy this game? Probably the only thing that could make it even better is if it was turn-based. Oh wait! They added a turn-based mode while I was playing this game. It was actually still in beta when I was playing this game the first time. Uh, this time around the, the, the turn-based mode was far more polished and works really well. It's basically an AP style system at that point. Uh, for anybody who's played, like, Fallout, or Divinity Original Sin, or uh, Arcanum, I guess. I'm trying to think of other examples here. Point being, it's awesome, and I love it. That's how I played this time through, for anybody curious. But you can also play in just the, the real-time with pause method if you want to. Okay, if I haven't sold you on the game yet, I got nothing else. I do want to mention one other thing before we start talking about the story, because... It's literally impossible to talk about this game without spoiling the hell out of Pillars of Eternity 1. I was recommending this game to a friend of mine, and he was like, do I need to play one before this? And me and Pax happened to both be in the chat. We both said I, at the same time, yes! He's like, what do you mean? To make this clear, the first paragraph of dialogue in PoE 2 spoils PoE 1 in its entirety. Seriously. So, be ye warned, this is spoilers for the first two games, because it's basically impossible not to spoil the first game in talking about the second game at all. And of course we have Aloth, uh, Pelagina, and Adair, who are returning characters, so... Also, this game has full voice acting. I say full, it's like 99% voice acting. Even random NPCs are voice acted. 
Can I just say this was such a treat to go to from uh, tra uh, Trails of Cold Steel 2, which is the game I played just before this. I forget when this is happening in the schedule, but I, I do these kind of out of order because I try to hit the big games first, you know, the long games first, and then work on the little things as kind of a breather. Anyways, in that game, there was a lot of inconsistent voice acting. You'd be like, I think we should do this. I agree. You know, back and forth between no voice acting and voice acting. In this, while there are occasional tidbits of no voice acting, they are very rare. Everything is voice acted. Which is going to be funny, because I'm going to mispronounce some things, I'm almost assured, and that's going to be very stupid. I actually have a pronunciation guide here for several names, just to make sure that I don't screw it up. But I don't think I will screw up anything except for possibly the name of the <clears throat> golems that we encounter throughout the course of the game. Now... I don't want to talk about this game. So normally when I talk about a large-scale Western RPG, I just kind of go in order. There's no such thing in this game. There's no order, really. I mean, there's the main quest, and you, you could just do the main quest and be hideously underleveled if you want to. But it's not like, you know, there's a set route to things. And as I mentioned before, thanks to the All Roads Lead to Road things... All roads lead to Rome quest design and the fact that they have the multitudinous options available and the fact that they got rid of backtracking and the quality of life changes related to the aforementioned points. You can have several things happen where you do something and then you do a quest and then you go into town and you talk to someone and someone's like, I'd like you to go do this thing you just did. And you could tell them, oh, as it happens, I actually just did that. And the dialogue option's even different. Obviously, you are not voiced. That's the that's the one variant here. This would be an excellent role-play game, because everyone's voiced except for you, which is one of the main points of a role-play game. Not that that's ever happening. <clears throat> so that is awesome. But it also means that you can do things wildly out of order, because there's no intended order. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about factions and people, kind of side by side. Then I'm going to talk about gods. And then I'm going to talk about the ending. Okay, that's the general structure here. So the first thing I want to talk about is the Hawana. Now, first of all, can I just say, one of the things I have always loved about the Obsidian writing team is their attention to world building. This is one of the things I've praised many, many times. In my unintentional New Vegas lore run, one of the things that I, I, I literally started that lore run doing was just talking about how amazing the world building is in that game. I would actually argue that Fallout receives more world building from New Vegas than any other game. Possibly multiple other games combined, depending on how you want to think of that. So, the Juana are an excellent example of this. We see not just a culture, which is impressive in its own right. We see cultures, subcultures. We see differing perspectives in a people who, ha who are obviously part of the same general group, but disagree with each other on the matter. We see a huge variety. You could tell they put a lot of time and research and effort into developing the Juana. And, uh, and I'm very impressed with it. Like, a lot. Um, we also, it, it, as part of their backstory, I mean, we find out how... Okay, so we're, we're officially into spoiler territory. This is your official last warning, by the way. We find out that the Juana, despite the fact that we've barely heard of them before, except in brief references to the Velians, uh, that they actually were directly connected to the Anguithans all the way back in the day when the Anguithans made the golems and crafted the, the false gods. 
And that's just impressive in its own right, isn't it, how they manage? Because one of the things I was almost worried about walking into this is it's like, okay, you've got the main hook, Aethus, but is this just go and explore an unrelated land? Nope, because it's not unrelated. This place is directly tied to the principal core of Pillars of Eternity 1, which is all about the false gods and the nature of how soul animancy works within this setting. Because one of the things that's true in, in the setting, this is mentioned in POE 1, this is made very clear in POE 2, is you can do a lot of things with the soul. It's not quite uh, phlebtonium or whatever, where it can be used for literally anything, but applied soul animancy can be used for a huge number of things. In fact, one of the side quests involves us figuring out how to literally teleport, like stable teleport thanks to soul animancy. Now this makes sense, because as we learned, the Anguithans themselves were ludicrously advanced, and basically everything they and their golems do is a matter of animancy. What they're actually doing is very, very high-level magic, basically. Uh, I would actually go so far as to say crafting magic. You know, pulling a moon and ripping it out of the sky, uh, crafting a weapon to split said moon. Thanks, Abaddon. Appreciate that. Um withstanding the, the literal magma of an active volcano, currently active volcano. Um, just all of these feats are all something that make a lot of sense if you view it through the lens of their animancy and the fact that they are specifically crafting specific feats in order to do this. Now, I swear this is related to the Juana. Let me, let me try, backtrack a little bit here. Because the Juana themselves, obviously they have their own uh, mythos built into, oh, I forget what they call her. It's Andra. They're specifically referring to Andra, although Andra didn't exist when they started worshipping a non-entity. They certainly had a thing going on with the dragons of the time. Anyways, they have this whole veneration of the sea thing, but part of that veneration is naturally the way to exploit it. Probably one of the most obvious examples of this is the poor dragon in the Water Shapers Guild, which I freed both playthroughs, by the way, because of course I friggin' did. Uh, Teke, uh, Tekehu, excuse me, I know I'm screwing that up somehow, has some interesting reactions if you take him there, by the way. I highly recommend it. By the way, this is a game that's probably meant to be played like five or six times. Did I mention that this game didn't sell well? Just just a quick aside. It's a damn shame because I stand by my statement that this is, if not the, one of the best CRPGs of all time. So, so go buy it. <laughs> I know, it doesn't matter now. Now all it will do is give money to Microsoft. <laughs> I actually have a pet theory that one of the biggest contributors to the fact that this game ended up in... It, that that one of the reasons that Obsidian ended up being bought out by Microsoft is because Obsidian's uh, finances were not doing great after this game, which was very expensive to make, didn't sell all that well. By like, I think as a factor of a fifth of their expected sales figure, something like that, it was awful. Back to the Juana. The Juana, uh, I know I'm, I know I'm kind of screwing up the pronunciation, by the way. I, I don't mean to do it. Partially it's because I'm talking so fast. But the point is, in addition to them being connected to this ancient veneration ripped from the sea mentality, we also see that that kind of leads them naturally to siding with the Anguithans once they showed up because they wanted to make Ukaizo. Ukaizo being the actual spot at which they crafted the golems, the aforementioned golems. And I'm, when I say golems, by the way, I'm referring to the, the fake gods just to make this very clear. I refuse to call them gods. They're not. 
They are golems. They are very, very powerful, very, very advanced golems that are very, very restricted by their general programming and um, act like golems in basically every way. I'll, I'll be talking more about them later. But what I really want to talk about is, in addition to the obvious relevance of Kaizo, it's almost funny because the general mentality, at least from what I, I glean from the conversations and, and the books, because there's lots of books in this game too, is the ancient Juana, who were basically poised to become the next great superpower alongside the Anguithans, felt betrayed when the Anguithans, you know, suicided, basically crafting said golems. And, of course, then the moon incident happened, and oh, that was fun. And, of course, there's the storm generator, because, as I mentioned, soul animancy can do kind of everything. So now there's these horrible, devastating storms regularly that keep Ukaizo free from everything else. I feel most bad for the dragons. The Guardian, that, that's basically the big final boss of the game. It's not actually the last combat encounter, but it is effectively the final boss. The Guardian is um, three separate dragons who allowed their souls to be bound into a mechanical creature that would live forever. And then it got locked away in Ukaizo, so it's trapped there. Nice people, the Anguithans. You can kind of see where they were coming from. I mean, you have an entire society of people who said, well... There's no gods and no higher meaning. So we have a choice. We can uh, all die, or we can craft fake gods so that other people don't come to this realization, and also die. And I like how dying was on the menu no matter what, because of the despair. Because of the reality of how horrible that felt. And that's, that's just interesting in, own, in its own right, isn't it? The other thing I want to talk about the Huana, though, is their current things. See, one of the interesting things is all the factions in this game are... Factions. This is actually kind of an obsidian hallmark. So this, you could argue this doesn't really get praise, but the harsh truth is that each of them is a organization. It's not an ideology. It's not, you know, the burning leader where every single member is dedicated to the endless purging of life. No, it's an organization, and like any organization, it has multiple people who disagree with each other, and... There's no... You can't summarize it with just one sentence, right? I mean, summarize an, a real-life organization that you are a part of, like a, a nation or a, a city council or whatever thing, in one sentence. Don't actually do that, because I just realized people are just going to be doing all sorts of terrible political jokes. No, 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 not on this channel. Take that elsewhere. But you get my point, right? A true organization can't actually be summarized by one sentence. Not really. All you can do is bullet point it, which is not doing it a favor. This is why I'm still talking about the Huana, despite the fact that I actually have only one bullet point on my list. But that's okay, because I only need one, because I just played the game and I have a lot to talk about, which is the caste system. <laughs> this is probably my favorite part of the Huana culture, because on the one hand, it's horribly evil and wrong. On the other hand, it's perfectly functional and normal. And on the other hand, it only works because of a status quo of the world which only exists in this setting. It wouldn't work in real life. And on the other hand, we're up to what, four hands now? On the fourth hand, we're kind of goroing up here, their caste system can't really survive the end of the game. So, caste, I actually wrote down the castes, just so I don't... So we've got the Ranga up top, that's the leadership. The Mataru, that's the military. The Kuwara, which... I believe that's the crafter cast, the mercantile cast. The Raparu, that's the um, 
serfs, to put that as nicely as possible, and the unworthy, which is castless, you know, in Dragon Age. <clears throat> and they practice a very weird form of trickle-down economics, because the way their entire system and society is designed is the, the top cast can pick whatever they want and take whatever they want. Whatever's left goes down to the next cast, the Mataru. Whatever they don't want goes down to the next cast, the Kuara, and whatever they don't want goes down to the Raparu. Now, obviously it's not actually that linear, except when it is. This is the weird thing about this system, because we actually see a couple of... So there's a lot of islands to explore and discover. There's tons of exploration in this game, which I love. I love the ship. I love just going around and traversing the overworld. absolutely adore it. Um... There's several smaller villages and, and islands that we see where this system actually works exactly as I just described. The, the leader and like his, his three entourage, they are in charge. They take what they want and what they need, then they pass on to the next, who pass on to the next, who pass on to the bottom. And it actually works exactly as described, and it works pretty fine because they only have like, you know, a hundred people or fifty people or whatever, and the system works as described. Now, this is interesting, and I have no doubt this was done unintentionally, but I think part of the reason here that this works is because it is such a small group. The larger any organization gets, the harder it is that any functionality is going to be achieved with said organization. So, to go to... Uh... Oh, God, I suddenly can't think of the capital city name. Oh, my God, I'm going to have to look this up. Hang on. Hang on. We'll just do this. Pillars of Eternity 2 Capital. Uh, Nekitaka. See, I didn't want to say that wrong, because it's... <clears throat> Nekitaka, by contrast, that doesn't work at all. And there's obviously a lot more politicking going on. Jockeying for position, jockeying for resources. And frankly, because there's simply less resources to go around, and so much more people in such a smaller area, well, like I said, the system literally doesn't work. Did I mention it's actually considered an insult if outsiders have to give to the lower castes? So, that forms some interesting cultural bias, too. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hang on, Lar. You said this system would only work within setting. It wouldn't work in real life. Why is that? Well, because the whole point of the system is that reincarnation is a very real and tangible thing within this setting. Once you die, your soul gets sent to the wheel, reprocessed, and sent back out as something else. Right? You know, it's 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 a, a pseudo artificial life stream, okay? So, with, since reincarnation is a very literal, tangible, provable, real thing, the way this generally works is they believe that any Raparu who die, they are then reborn as Kuara. I'm saying that right. Yep, Kuara. Kuara then are reborn as Mataru, and Mataru is reborn as Ranga. In short, every time you die, you go up the you go up the chain. Or at least you can. I'm sorry, I should say that. It is a chance to go up the chain. So in other words, the only way to get promoted out of your cast is to die. Now again, that does work in a setting where reincarnation is a real practical thing. Except for the obvious fact that you don't really get the benefits of that, because you're dead. The new you doesn't have any of the memories, mentality, or anything of, of the old you. They are, for all intents and purposes, a completely new entity. Unless your name is Theos you are a new person each time. So, it's still kind of messed up. And you remember how I mentioned it can't withstand the end of the game? Well, the wheel's broken. And there's nothing you can do about that, by the way. I like that. 
and, I, and I'll talk about that last, but I like the fact that no matter what you do, no matter how you go through a game with bagrillions of options and choices and dozens of paths to progress, the wheel is always destroyed at the end. Massive, massive alteration to the status quo. Now, in contrast to the Juana, we have the Principi. Now, the Principi are interesting because they're... Well, they're pirates, just to put that as bluntly as possible. So as you might imagine, they are amazingly loosely coordinated, except for the ones that obviously are directly coordinated with each other. Or to explain this another way, the Principi is kind of a umbrella term for the organized and the disorganized pirates within the region. There are some disorganized pirates who just claim to be Principi, or like, ah, I totally am, but they don't actually pay dues or follow orders or anything like that. And of course, they have a very... You know, Klingon, Mandalorian kind of command structure where it's totally cool to kill your superior if you think you can get away with it and you have the support for it. So it's not like, you know, there's anything against murdering your comrades within this organization. I mean, they're pirates, right? Now, what's interesting is you're probably hearing me say pirates and you're thinking, God, that's horrible. And you're right. There are also pirates amongst them. Now, in the off chance you've never heard me make this distinction, a pirate is a disgusting, degenerate human being who deserves to die. A pirate is Jack Sparrow from the Pirates of the Caribbean. Just to summarize that as quickly as I can. In short, a pirate is more of a romanticization of the concept of piracy, piracy excuse me, and it kind of leans more in the direction of privateer. Privateer? God. But in addition to that, a pirate is usually someone whose ideology is actually more towards freedom and choice and openness rather than murdering and enslaving and killing and taking, right? So we actually see both types throughout the organization of the Principi. And what I found very funny is, as I, I expected to go into the Principi and just kill them all. But then I encountered Ferrante. Now, he was actually surprisingly smart, because the first thing he did upon seeing us was he tried to deal. He was like, hey, you're extremely powerful and extremely influential. Why don't we talk? And I'm like, okay. Ferrante is actually pretty smart. It's probably one of the best things about his character, because he is a pirate. He is actually a very horrible, evil slaver who deserves to die. But then we have Aldus, the counterpart to Ferrante. And Aldus is far more of a pirate than a pirate. Well, she is still not fully a Jack Sparrow-type character. She is definitely someone who actually has principles and ideology, is very anti-slavery, and depending on how you go through a particular quest arc, she could be the one to, you know, continue on the the the, uh, the crusade, for lack of a better way to put it, of ending uh, slavery within the islands, within the archipelago, if you choose to go that route. Actually, a lot of people can go a lot of different ways, depending on how you interact with them. Seraphin is a great example. That Jyoti, oh my god, she's a huge example of that. But let's, I'm getting off topic. The Principi are interesting, too, because they do have some old Velian roots. And to explain that in brief... Oh, jeez, I have so much to talk about here. Notice I'm only up to bullet point two, by the way. This is why I felt comfortable just putting bullet points in my notes. The old Velian Empire was exactly what it sounded like. Um, think of it as... Well, Rome's probably a bad example, but at the same time, it's kind of a good one. Think of old Roman Empire, and imagine that the old Roman Empire just shattered into a bunch of different republics called the Holy Roman Empire, and you've kind of got the, the, the Velian Republics as they are now. Now, I'm not going to talk about the Velian Republics net, next, but the point is the old Velian Empire still has people who, you know, venerate the concepts or who are like, oh, yes, because it's not that old. 
it's it's only a few generations past at this point, I think, depending on how you define generations, I guess. And so, Ferrante, he's part of the old guard. He's someone who wants to, yes, yes, empire and control. We will build our empire on the backs of slaves. And, well, I mean, again, he is smart. I will give him that. I just, I had to kill him. He's a slaver. That's a rule. You see a slaver, they die. It's really simple. So I ended up backing Aldous there in my first playthrough. But unfortunately, the way the game works is when you get to the end game, whoever you have supported helps you get to the end game. Whoever is basically number two, well, they're the big opposition right at the end. And unfortunately, the Principi were my number two, and I'd already killed Ferrante, so I had to kill Aldous, which made me really sad. <laughs> that was my first playthrough. I was using a walkthrough my second time to kind of help. Although, there aren't really a lot of good walkthroughs for this game, I noticed. And the wiki is kind of crap. So that that's fun. But that's okay, because now I want to talk about some characters. Now, I know this is going to sound like a weird parallel, but when it comes to the Juana and the Principi, I think the best characters to define them are Aloth and Takehu. <laughs> Hear me out. Aloth... Oh, God, where do I begin with him? He wasn't as interesting of a character in this one as he was in the first one, probably because the dominant part of his character arc was directly tied into the leaden key, which is effectively a non-factor in the second game. Now, he, depending on how you ended that, he could either still be with the leaden key, or he could be devoted to hunting down and destroying the leaden key. Take your pick. Uh, mine was the latter, by the way. But Aloth is someone who is a fascinating example of someone who is constantly lying to themselves except around those they feel most comfortable with, while at the same time despising lying in other. And if I just described every human being on Earth, please forgive me. But Aloth and his approach is far more... He comes across as intellectual, as someone who thinks logically. But logic and intellect are his approach, not his motive. He is not in it for the science. He's not someone who thinks that there should be order, although you can't actually... A lot of what I'm about to say is actually contradicted by the games themselves, because you can take these characters on a lot of different paths, so please forgive me. But in general, Aleth is not someone who is motivated by the, the, the there must be a strict order and everything must be guided by the governing principles of, of the documents 553, paragraph 7, section 4, word 2, letter 3. Yes, that letter tells us how to deal with this situation. And Aleth's approach allows him to... I'm trying to think how to properly phrase this. His approach leaves him in constant self-conflict because he is an emotional person who is driven by a deep personal need to belong, to find a purpose in his life, which you can you, you know, help him to find. Um, I mean, the literal reason he joins you in POE 1 is because you happened along and he was having what is effectively a crisis of, of conscience slash faith slash identity, <laughs> right? So, he's in constant conflict with himself. He wants to have some kind of ideology to adhere to, but he kind of doesn't, and he doesn't know what ideology to have because he has, to be as nice as I possibly can about this, a very weak core. This is in addition to his awakened problems, which I'm not even going to get into. This is also um, kind of... So, to, to, to kind of summarize a little bit, Aloth is the parallel to the Principi here. The Principi... And Aloth, both, 
have no real decisive core. There's nothing that really defines what they are. They tend to be defined by how others tend to move and manipulate them with bene benevolent intent or malicious intent, because both are available. You can be very evil in this game, by the way. Like, like kind of really, really evil. It's, it's very obsidian. Anyways. <clears throat> and they also, like I said, very emotionally charged with intellectual approach, which is, of course, the exact opposite of the Juana, which are more like Takehu, which is a more obvious parallel, because Takehu is a very intellectually motivated, artistically modus operandi kind of a character. Now, to try and rewind a little bit there, in exact parallel to Aloth, Takehu is someone who... He's all about the art and the beauty, and he's amazing, yes. You, you are now more beautiful simply by being next to me, which is all a load of bull. Oh, don't mistake me. He does actually have some uh, vaingloriousness to him. But ultimately, most of that is something that's been built up over, you know, a little bit of echo chamberiness of people venerating him over the time. Because remember, he is a... Godborn? Godsend? I can't remember what they're called. He has a bit of a deity in him, one of the golems, which is funny, by the way, because the only reason those people exist is as mana batteries. <laughs> you want to talk about horrifying? I need a few extra mana charges, and just in case. Here, I'll make a few people. There we go. Okay, and if I need them... <laughs> and it's exactly what it sounds like, by the way. Anyways. <clears throat> but yes, he... Uh, He's used to being on the top of the pedestal, and so he's kind of gotten accustomed to that idea, but he, in similarity to Aloth, has no real core. He doesn't know who or what he is, and he doesn't know how he wants to be. Thus, the core of his entire point, his motives, are all stemming from an intellectual bent, trying to think his way through a situation, while in fact his actual motive, uh, sorry, not motive, his, his, his method, that's what I meant to say earlier, his method of approach is all entirely emotional. In short, both form a nice parallel to each other, and of course Takehu forms a nice parallel to the Huana. The very idea of the people who, while there is certainly a mind on top of that queen, head on top of the queen's head? There's a mind at the top of the Huana culture. There's an intellectual process there. Remember, the whole point of the reincarnation caste system thing is because it's okay, you're going to get promoted. We understand this. It may be emotionally appalling, and it may be kind of unpleasant right now, but eventually it will get better, and we understand this intellectually, so we tolerate it emotionally. And, of course... This kind of ties to the fact that the Juana, as horrible as this may sound, don't really have a core either. Not really. They are the Juana. They have their traditions and their beliefs, some of which are based on outright lies, as we find out throughout the course of the game. Others of which are just things they've been doing for various reasons, you know, various practical reasons, like most traditions are actually built. And they also... Well, they don't really have much of an identity other than being the Juana. Which leads me rather neatly into the Royal Deadfire Company. Now, in contrast to the previous two groups who are both kind of... It's a lot easier to define the next two groups I'm going to talk about, which is the Royal Deadfires and the Velians. 
Now, the Royal Deadfire Company is, it, it's the East India Trading Company, just to put it as bluntly as possible. It's, it's in every way. It's the East India Trading Company. It's a militarized organization that has a company format that exists at the national level. It is a nationally funded and backed company of the Rawatai, or the Rawatayans. I forget how to actually say that. I know it's Rawatai for the, for the area. They are interesting. Because what I like about them is it would be very easy for them to be cartoonishly evil, and they're not. Oh, they're evil. <laughs> if, if you want something as close to an evil... So they're, they're probably the lawful evil choice if you wanted to go in such a direction. Whereas backing Ferrante with the Principe would probably be the chaotic evil or neutral evil route. Actually, I guess that would be neutral evil, because then chaotic evil would just be to kill everyone. Which you can do. You can do that. No, seriously, you can just kill everyone and then just go to the end game. I don't recommend it. You're going to have a very short, very uneventful game, and it's probably going to be pretty rough. But you can do it if you want to. You can just kill whoever. Anyways. <clears throat> but the Royal Deadfire Company would be the lawful evil group. They're here to conquer. Their job here is to use commerce and mercantile ends in order to try and establish a section of control and turn the archipelago into another province of the Rawatayan Empire. That's the overall goal here. Annexation. They're all about the expansion, and here's the really interesting part to me, and I'm going to say this as lightly as possible because there's no way to say this good. They are trying to drag the Huana into the modern era whether they want to be or not. And that's why this gets really messed up. See, this is why I say it's nice that they're not cartoonishly evil. They're evil. What they're trying to do to the Hawana people is is wrong. I think we can all accept that this kind of um, provincial colonialism is not a good thing, and there's a lot of parallels between the Royal Dead Fire Company and the East India Trading Company and its various interactions with other cultures. I think it's a good way to put that. <clears throat> But, the, like I said, they're not cartoonishly evil. We encounter several people amongst the Royal Deadfire who are, well, let's just say legitimate in their overall beliefs and methods. Like, to put it into one perspective, it's not about, you know, telling the Juana that they can't worship their gods and that they can't, you know, practice their traditions. It's more like saying, you know, you, you could really use a proper aqueduct system to get some water to this area, holy crap. And, and uh, maybe a purifier you know, something to clean said water. You know, it just, we need to try and help you people because you, you're living in filth, for God's sakes. I mean, the capital name, which I've already forgotten the name of, name of Tekitaka, Tekitaka, I just love it up. Nekitaka, God, you, I spent enough time there, you think I know the name of it. Seriously, you spend like half the game in Nekitaka, especially if you're just doing the main quest. Nekitaka itself is probably the biggest example of the Juana at their worst. And the Deadfire at their, excuse me, the Royal Deadfire Company at their best. Everywhere else, eh, not, not so much. Because again, they're here as an annexing colonial power. They are here to rip resources out of the region and use them for the benefit of the Empire itself. Yeah. Of course, they are an interesting contrast then. Well, actually, before I move on, I want to talk about the Rawatai briefly, because one of the weird things that helps to gray them out a little bit is the storms. Now, this is actually mentioned several times. You don't get a lot of info on this unless you actually dig into it or go their route. Like I said, you can back all of these four uh, organizations with, throughout the course of the game, or none of them, if you choose. 
But the storms, you know, the storms that are being generated up around Ukaizo, yeah, those devastate Rawatai. Rawatai is a very, what's the opposite of prosperous? Barren, that's a good word. It's a very barren territory. They more or less need imports in order to survive. They're kind of in a Coruscant kind of a situation, you know. And it does add a little bit of gray to the circumstance when the colonial empire more or less requires, you know, resources and personnel to go back home in order to keep them functioning as a people. Now, I point this out because this is one of the reasons why it's interesting that you have the option to uh, back them. Because if you do so, they just shut off the storms and leave them off. And and then just prosperity happens. <laughs> like, oh like that, basically. I, I'm being facetious, of course, but in the ending slide, it's like, some people think that they, you know, they lost some of their identity of being the strong, the powerful, the conquerors. Others point to the fact that they have plentiful resources and more peace, and, you know, as, as kind of an acceptable trait for that. Although, given the enemies they've probably made, eh, But now I want to move on to the Velians. Now, I'm saying Velian. I actually, it's, it's spelled V-A-I-L- I-A-N. <laughs> and I want to say Valian, but every time I actually made a point of listening, and they call it Velian, or Valian, like like it's a really weird... I, I can't do pronunciations, you guys know this. So I'm going with Velian, because that's kind of what they say in-game, and I'm trying to do the best I can with pronunciations. The Velians, they're interesting. Because, as I mentioned earlier, first we had the great Holyak Roman Empire. Actually, maybe... Uh, Oh, what's his name? No, not Constantinople. Um, or Constantine. Oh, God, I can't think of his name. The guy who founded the, the big empire of doom that then broke into three pieces. And that, that eventually became the whole, you know, what, the beginnings of the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, I can't think of the, his name. Charlemagne, Charlemagne, there we go. Maybe the, the Charlemagne... The Empire, the, the Carolingian Empire, however you pronounce that, might be actually a better parallel for the old Velians. Because the new Velians, well, there's a whole bunch of them. And they're not really allied with each other so much as they are a bunch of competing states. They're loosely allied, which you can see why I keep comparing them to the Holy Roman Empire, by the way. On the off chance you don't know what I'm talking about, the Holy Roman Empire was neither Holy Roman or Empire. It was a bunch of states, provinces, in the regions that now occupy, you know, Germany and France, and well, East France, excuse me, and that general region of north of Italy. And they were all, well, <laughs> they were all competitors, but they were kind of unified, but they kind of weren't. And there's it, it's it's exactly what it sounds like. Competing states within an overall, let's call it a confederacy, because that's probably one of the better exam, uh, consequences of this. Because a confederacy, logically speaking, in its governmental definition, is an organization that only is one unit when dealing with foreign powers. For the most part, each of them just deals with their own thing. There's no real federal laws. There's no federal military, per se. There's just federal when it comes to dealing with antipodes. And I know there's some variances on that. Point being, uh, that's what the Velians are now, the Velian Republics. As we hear a lot from Pelagina, the Dukes are not what you'd call um, uh, smart. I think that's a good word. 
she constantly complains, and the game constantly shows how the dukes and d duchesses are uh, very short-sighted. Think your stereotypical dumb corporate executive, and you've basically got the leadership of the Valiant Republics. But that's not who we're actually backing. I'm just giving you backstory to the Valiant Company, uh, the Valiant something company. I forget what they actually call it. But when I say Velians, I'm mostly referring to the Velian Company, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is a single company that operates with... Uh, basically, it is owned in part by a whole lot of people from a whole lot of places. There are plenty of parts of the Velian Republics that all have a stake in the Velian Trading Company, or whatever the heck it's called. And the company itself, well, as a consequence of this, they're only in it for the money. Now, I want to explain that briefly. See, some people would say, well, aren't all companies like that? Well, no, actually. Especially from a real-life parallel, most companies are about three major things. Making, making, and helping. That is to say, making money, making product, or helping their own, uh, their employees, basically, right? Now, the priority order here, that varies wildly and substantially. But, for example, if you were thinking about an investment firm, well, they don't make anything, so that's just off the list entirely. So they are only interested in making money and helping the employees. And that last part is probably a distant second. That's the type of company, the Velian Trading Company. What's God, this is going to bother me. What's it called? Hang on, hang on. Doing all this research, and I couldn't think of the name of the... <laughs> uh, please tell me it's here. It is just Valiant Trading Company. Vade. It was something so simple. The Valiant Trading Company is all about profit. They're like an investment firm. And that kind of is all I really need to say about them. If you've heard me talk about, you know, greed or corporate policies for the last, like, three years at this point. Four years, excuse me. Yeah, they're, they're not cool. They are lawful neutral, to put it into simplistic terms. They are the ones who are like, income, profit... Profit, income, we don't care how you get there. We really don't. In short, and I know this is strange because I don't have much else to say about them because it's mostly the backstory, the pure mercantile approach makes it so that they are more amoral than they are immoral. It's more like I don't care what is accomplished, what I care about is the bottom line. The ends justify any means, right? That doesn't mean they're good. As I think I've pointed out, all four of these factions are not good. That's the point. Now, this, of course, makes them to a nice parallel between Pelagina and Maya. Now, this is probably one of the more obvious parallels between organizations and people. See, the Royal Deadfire Company is best presented by Pelagina, who actually works for them. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm saying that wrong. What I meant is Maya, sorry. The Royal Deadfire Company is Maya, yeah, who works for them. <clears throat> Pelagina works for the, the Valiant Trading Company. Maya is, well, she has a heart. You can tell by talking to her. She does care about things. But for the most part, she is all business. She is here to get a job done, and that's the end of that. You can, at length, talk with her and reach out to her and try and get her to open up a little bit, but it's probably telling that it is extremely difficult to find a good ending for Maya. Because anything that is a good ending for Maya, like the things you would think would be a good ending for Maya, lead to her being you know, miserable and abandoned, or leading to horrible things happening, because the Royal Deadfire Company wins. So there's not really a good 
ending for her. Not really. There are some good things, like her and Jyoti ending up together is actually kind of a nice little thing and helps the two keep going. But for the most part, Maya's amorality kind of leads her to her sake where there's not really a good resultant, which, as horrible as this sounds, makes perfect sense to me. After all, she's not really about good or bad. She's only about results, just like a good soldier would be. I know, I know, she's more of an operative than she is a soldier, but I stand by my statement firmly, which, of course, brings me to Pelagina. Now, Pelagina's interesting because there's also not really a good ending for her because she's immoral. Yeah, I know, she's supposed to be the paladin, and she speaks firmly and fondly of the, of her loyalty of her nation and her, her fondness of kin, but it's it's one of those General Leo kind of situations, right? She is clearly loyal to a uh, uh, not-good organization. I said that wrong. I said that wrong. I just glanced at my notes. I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted. My neighbors just came by, and that's my fault. I apologize. Maya is immoral. Maya is immoral, not amoral. And she is, what I was trying to say, God, Lord, wake up. Let's rewind a second. <laughs> Sorry, I had some neighbor issues. Let's start, let's try this again. I'm not sure when I'm going to pick up the edit here, but let, let's talk about Maya. Maya serves as a nice parallel to the Royal uh, Deadfire Company because she obviously works for it. But Maya is, of course, immoral, just like the Royal Deadfire Company is. Maya is someone who is more than willing to do ill because she it, it will accomplish her goals. Now, that's the point, by the way. The whole point of immorality is that you know what you're doing is wrong, and you're doing it anyways. Now, that can be for a lot of reasons. That could be because you're evil or malicious or selfish or driven or whatever. But it's immoral because you know you're doing wrong, and that's the baseline. So I'm not saying Maya is evil. I am saying she is immoral. She knowingly and willingly perpetuates something that she does not agree with. And it's probably telling that Maya doesn't really have a good ending. Now, this is interesting in its own right. I mean, there are ways to get her a better ending, but most of her endings don't really turn out well because anything that's good for the company is not good. You know, it's evil, basically, with the exception of the reduced storms, which is a, probably a good thing. And anything that's good for her is probably going to involve her separating from the company, which involves her not really... Like, like, what else is she going to do exactly? Where else? What other life does she have? She is an assassin agent sniper. Like, where else is she going to go, right? So it's it's understandable in its own right that she doesn't really have a good ending in the strictest sense of the word, unless you pair up with Jyoti, which is a nice touch. But anyways, then, of course, we have Pelagina, who is amoral. My country, right or wrong. She is, she's the General Leo of this situation. She is only interested in the good of the republics and her loyalty to her people and the ideology of that flag, which, as I think I've tried to explain when I was discussing the Valiant Republics, doesn't really exist. And this loyalty and this blind devotion kind of leads her to not really caring about things like right or wrong, only caring about what her orders are and what her people want of her. She herself has her own preferences and opinions, of course, and various things that kind of come in, like the whole, you know, I don't want to look like a bird thing, and finding her would-be father figure, and, you know, her romance affair with the Duchess. But the point being, at the end of the day, is that for all of her amorality, she kind of remains sort of a neutral element in this game, which is actually funny, considering she's a frickin' paladin in virtually all, in all but name. 
But of course that makes sense because a paladin is, is a knight adherent with magical backing and abilities, which tends to lead themselves towards believing in a specific virtue or entity. And in this case, obviously she doesn't follow any of the particular golems because screw them. No, instead she follows an ideal, and her ideal is a flag. Now, this leads me... <laughs> Sorry about the noise. This leads me to the last two... Excuse me, the last three characters to talk about. I actually have the least to say about these. That's kind of why I saved them for last. If I wanted to, I could actually make a chart of each of the companions and how they all play off of each other because there's some good dynamic between a lot of them. I decided that that would be insane and I do have other things to work on, so I'm just making what I felt to be the most interesting dynamics, such as Joti versus Adair. Now, Joti, she's... Wow. Uh, the reason these two are so dynamic with each other is not just because of the romance or the friendship, which can happen too, actually. And, I, and honestly, the friendship path is pretty cool. But, and not because of the fact that Joti can romance you and Adair cannot. Fun fact, for those of you not aware, Joti kind of... I, I basically ended up accidentally into a romance with Joti during my first playthrough. I ended up reloading and it never happened again, so... It's okay, she ended up with Maya. It's okay, she had a happy ending. Joti is the kind of person who, at first glance, you think of her as... Like, she's the little kid sister you just want to take care of, right? She's so innocent, naive, and wide-eyed, and zealous, and that's incredibly dangerous. Because she has a very firm opinion in her beliefs, and it is so firm that she is willing to adhere to it basically to the point of extremism. This is how she parallels to Adair so nicely. If you remember, Adair went to war because of his beliefs. You remember that? In the, in the backstory leading up to one? <laughs> yeah. It's also interesting to note that Adair... Adair can go a lot of ways in this game. But for me, the way he went was... He knew the truth about the Golems, of course, and he kind of accepted it. But ultimately, while it broke his faith in... Let me say this part correctly. While it broke his blind faith, it established his specific faith. This is a phrase I've been using a lot lately. Uh, so, in, in the off chance this video goes live before any other videos explain it, in brief, blind faith is you have faith and then you get a result. Specific faith is you have a result and then you have faith in it. You with me? It's about whether it's front-loaded or back-loaded. I'm not sure which would be which in that case, but you get the idea. He had blind faith before. Now he has specific faiths. Faith in individuals. Faith in humanity. Kith, I should say, in general. Faith in people's ability to actually make something of all this. He firmly believes that this will actually turn out, even when Aethos does what he is intending to do. He is also a very firm... How do I phrase this? We don't need the gods kind of a mentality. And honestly, it's kind of hard to disagree with him given the circumstances. This is also something the gods themselves have been debating, but I'll get to them in just a moment. Joti, by contrast, is only at the very beginning of that concept. She is still very blindly faithful. And that is a dangerous thing, unfortunately. Now, not because there's anything necessarily wrong with blind faith, and I'm not trying to say that there is. Rather, it's more the fact that that can go in a lot of directions. And funnily enough, there are three general directions her character can go. First, she can go completely insane. <laughs> yeah. 
Second, she can become a serial murderer. Yeah. Third, she can come to grips with what and who she is and her role in trying to help others. Now, if that sounds weird because it's like bad, horrible, amazing, well, again, blind faith can go all of those ways. We've seen that in real life. So that's actually pretty believable to me. And it all depends on how her interactions go with those around her, notably us. So you kind of, you do have to shepherd her a little bit, but if you do, she turns into an awesome force for good. And there's something kind of heartwarming about that. Because the, the critical points come when she starts to question her faith, because she's just not sure what's going on or why. It is when you provide specific answers and make her realize that it's not that she's being betrayed or that she was wrong, more the fact that she was incorrect but not wrong, and that she's not been betrayed, it's just that she didn't understand the stakes of what was that, what was happening. Ergo, through being right and incorrect, she is able to find some peace with the nature of that and allow her to move forward. Or she turns into a serial killer, or she goes insane. Take your pick. Adair, of course, he can become a bitter husk of a man, or an awesome dude who ends up becoming mayor, or dead. He can die, too. That's always cool when people die. That leaves Seraphin. Now, I left him alone on purpose because while he has some obvious parallels to several other things in the game, the harsh reality is that while he was an interesting character, he felt like he didn't have any strong dynamic with anyone else. This is ignoring the fact that he's the seventh party member. Let's just ignore that for a moment. I, I would have paralleled him to Takahu, Takehu, excuse me, but ultimately the only real parallel between there is that both belief in the fact that, you know, you should do and not hold yourself back, which Takehu doesn't really believe, and Seraphin doesn't either. So that's that's about as close as we got there. See, Seraphin, Seraphin is definitely a poirate. He is absolutely someone who believes in the, in the firmly in the concept of, of freedom and just sailing the seas and all that fun stuff, and he is not above taking from others. I'm not trying to paint him as a good person. But he is the kind of person who will not kill you if he can avoid it. He will absolutely not hurt or, or damage you if he can avoid it. He will take what you have because he wants it. But he is extremely anti-slavery and anti-abuse. Especially since such things have been done to him. In short, Seraphin is a kind of human being, excuse me, kind of kith, who has gone through some very horrible stuff and came out of it basically with the best of himself. Now in this case, he's still not a good guy but he is still a lot better, morally speaking, than honestly most of the people I just mentioned. It's probably worth noting, and this is the other way that makes him unique, amongst Aloth, Takehu, Palagina, Maya, Joti, and Adair. If I'm not mistaken, I, sh I shouldn't say this so definitely, but if I'm not mistaken, Seraphin has no option to turn into a horrible, disgusting person. He doesn't have any dark path. The worst that can happen to him is you sell him into slavery. Or he bails on you because of your support of slavery. That's about as bad as that goes. Otherwise, he is always a force for trying to make the waters a better place. And that's interesting, isn't it? It's probably intended as some kind of insight into the idea that... I'm trying to think how to phrase this. Basically, that you can't believe too much in good or evil, since he himself is kind of a neutral... But I've I've talked too much about characters and ca companies. Let's talk about <clears throat> gods. 
Now, the golems receive a lot of characterization in this game, which is actually pretty awesome. We get to see and interact with, uh, I think, all of them, if I'm not mistaken. Obviously, Aethos is the most common one. Now, the first thing I want to point out, though, is how all of them condescend to you, with one exception, constant, with two exceptions, constantly. They look down at you, they spit at you, you are beneath me, why should I explain myself to you? You are not worthy of my time, blah, blah, blah. Now, there's arguably three exceptions to this, and funnily enough, I'll be talking about the three of them last. So the first thing I want to talk about is Andra. She feels the most traditionally Greek of the various golems, because she's not actively malicious so much as she is completely uncaring. <laughs> she does what she does because she wants to, and because it's what she's programmed to do. And she has a fish for a head, so, you know, I mean, I can kind of understand that. You know, when you have a fish for a head, there's only so much you can do, morality speaking. But she, of course, is one of the more active people here, which makes a lot of sense, given the fact that this is in many ways her domain. A lot of the Juana, as I mentioned earlier, venerate and worship her, knowingly or otherwise, since she has actually been renamed by them into the old deity they used to worship, which didn't exist. So... She just kind of assumed the slot there. She saw an empty chair and was like, yeah, okay. I'll sit down here. It's kind of comfy. Ooh, this is for me? Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm. This, of course, leads to Wodron. Now, excuse me, Wodron? There's no Wodron. Wodica. Excuse me. Now, Wodica I use in direct contrast to Andra because Wodica is... I've heard several people argue which the worst golem is. Some people say it's Rimmergrand. Rimmergan, excuse me, I always say his name wrong. Some people say it's Rimmergan. Some people say it's Cain. Um, some people say it's Wodica. Wodica's whole thing is about organization and rule. And she wants to rule on high as Sultan. The problem is she's apparently really bad at it, and she's not actually any stronger or better than the others. And you know, this is actually kind of unique. She has no real alliance with any of the other golems. See, there is a little bit of internecine politics with the golems, which honestly I, I really wish we saw more of because it's fascinating. But each of them kind of... I mean, think of it like a council, and each of them comes to the council with their own agendas and their own policies, and they all want to push their agenda... But they're just one vote, right? They're all equal. Every single one of them is a group of equals. So the only way for this to actually go anywhere is for them to gain allies. This is why Wodica is unique, because she has no allies. This is also arguably why she is debatably the weakest, technically speaking. Not because she is lesser in overall power, but because she is lesser in political power amongst the rest of the golems. So she doesn't have the capacity to do what several of the others can do. This is also why I put her in contrast to Andra, who naturally assumed the rulership of her of position that was grifted to her, whereas Wodica is constantly trying to take that position of rulership from those who do not wish to give it. And every time she has tried, it has not turned out well for her. This leads me, of course, to Whale. Now, I don't have much to say about Whale, but I do want to use him in contrast to someone else, because Whale, aside from the obvious parallels to Hermaeus Mora, is someone who is kind of disconnected from the rest of things. He's all about secrets and manipulations and plots. He barely even has a functional form like the others. And he tends to think in terms of what he can prevent from being known to others. And that's kind of the closest thing to an agenda he has. He's a bit flighty, but it's flight without purpose, if that makes any sense. 
So just kind of going about his business, which leads me in contrast to now I'm gonna this is the one pronunciation I know I'm gonna screw up. Hylia. <laughs> no, not the one from Zelda. The bird lady. You know, Palagina's best friend. Hylia is a good contrast to uh, Whale, in my opinion, because Hylia is just as flighty, but actually tends to push agendas. She is someone who, as much as she believes in the freedom and the air and just doing whatever catches her eye, she is still trying to accomplish goals rather distinctly. She's also one who, as a natural consequence of this, is very willing to make allies amongst the others in order to try and push what she believes should happen. Then we have Skane, who is the evil one. I'm not really kidding. That is his job. He is the evil golem. He's the only one who is definitively just the bad guy. And unfortunately, I have the least to say about him. He is cruelty and violence, you know, violent overthrows, violent rebellion kind of a thing. And he doesn't have much to do in this game, which is... That's probably a good thing, if I'm being honest. I don't really want to interact with Bane any more than I have to. Which moves me, of course, to... Uh, Galloway. Galloway is the other one we have very little to do with in this game. Actually, there's three, if we're being honest. Because Galloway, well, his big shtick is that he doesn't really care about people. They call them kith in this game, if you're wondering why I'm using that phrase. Galloway's big shtick is the animals, the wild, the nature, you know, everything that isn't the people. The, he's the, the severe environmentalist kind of a person. So you can kind of see his position and why he ultimately has very little to do with anything here, since most of these affairs are primarily affecting people and very little affecting the terrain around them. There are a few quests about him which are cool, but that's kind of it. The third one who doesn't really have much to, do with anything, much to do with anything is Abaddon. Of course, Abaddon already had his time in the sun back in the White March. You can kind of see why he doesn't have a lot of time in the sun here. What I find interesting about him is he is the crafting god who is broken. Thanks to the events with Andra and the moon, and he's literally not complete. He is a program, except some of his files are read-only, and he's having issues. And you can kind of tell, but it's really only Meyer inference, and he doesn't have a lot to do in this game. You know what he does have a lot to do in this game? is Magrin. Now, Magrin is actually one of the three kind of reasonable ones. Despite being fire and war... Magrin is nevertheless probably one of the ones who is most uh, most willing to treat you like you're a person rather than a particularly cute puppy that she happens to be stopping to pet, like most of the others do. And she's also willing to bargain and deal with you, which is important because it also shows how she is willing to bargain and deal with the other golems. I would actually argue, based on position, that Magrin is probably the second overall strongest of the various golems, because of her specific willingness to work and interact with others. Of course, this is in total contrast to Rimmergand. Rimmergand is fascinating, really, because his whole shtick is finality. Uh, both Bereth and Aethos, who I, you notice I haven't talked about yet, both have a thing with cycles, things continuing, you know, death, rebirth, corpses leading to fertilizer, leading to plants, right? Rimmergand is corpses leading to dust, leading to ash, leading to subatomic molecules, leading to nothing. He is actual entropy, the, the concept of dissolution or cessation. And his ending is hilarious. I just, I'm going to pause to talk about it real quick. So if you go through, Rimmergand tells you that you can convince Aethos that it's all pointless and meaningless. 
And if you do, well, let's just say that that doesn't go very well, or very well, depending on how you think of it. Because what happens is all the, all the deities die, all the, all the golems die. And then uh, a lot of things die. And then everything that keeps dying continues to die more until, like, like you, you just can't grow food anymore. And, and animals stop being. And so there's no game. And there's no, no grain. And then there's no babies. And then there's no people. And then there's no world. And it just kind of turns into a rock, a, a, multi, a chunk of ash in space, which then dissolves into nothing. Which is, of course, exactly what Rimmergand wants. Why did they make this one again? <laughs> but uh, Rimmergand, again, he stands alone, but he tends to be a hell of a plotter. He is probably one of the most willing to manipulate and or interact with non-golems in order to get what he wants done. And this is something that's shown multiple times in his arcs. Hmm. Sorry. This, of course, leads me to the last two deities to talk about. Bereth is the most obvious one. Bereth, the deity, the golem, the god of death. She's amusing. I keep saying she and he, by the way. This is mostly because of the voice acting in this game. It's more accurate to say that all of these are its, because, you know, golems. Bereth is... she's amusing because she is exactly as neutral, lawful neutral, as I would think someone who is of death would be. She doesn't take any guff, like at all. And she is more than willing to put her foot down, her boot down, if you will, in order to make sure things go properly. But she's not unreasonable, and she's not too haughty. She's one of the other ones who is willing to treat you like you actually are worth a damn, although not to the fullest extent. She still talks down to you. It's just she is still willing to be politic about it. It's also probably worth noting that, overall, she might be in the best position, and especially if she ends up becoming the head of the council during the ending, which leads me naturally to Aethys. Now, Aethys by far gets the most characterization in this one, and that makes sense. We interact with and talk with him multiple times, and we're literally chasing him the entire game. He is the main plot hook. A giant Adra statue just stomping along, and we're just supposed to follow him. Yeah. <clears throat> Aethos, Aethos, he's interesting to me because he is fatherly. Now that's important because he is the only one of the golems who treats us as if we matter. While some of them are willing to be polite or willing to you know, not talk down to us, he actually treats us as if he legitimately cares about us. And he does this to every mortal he interacts with. He is, of course, probably the most obvious example of a good, just, just straight up the good deity in opposition to Skane and Rimmergand, who are the evil deities. But Aethos, he's... I keep saying Aethos. Aethos. His overall approach is one of conflict. Internal conflict, almost entirely. Because his desire is, is ultimately to do good. And he is caught in what I like to call the paradox of leadership. Because... He is trying to take care of the individuals whom he cares about, and demonstrably so, while at the same time taking care of the macroscopic perspective of the organizations and the people and the concepts, and that those two are incongruent. That's, that's the paradox of leadership. So what does he do? Well, what he does is the main theme of the game. Some people like this and some people don't. And I think 
basically, I like this idea when it's very carefully crafted, which I do think this game does. The main theme of the game, and I've been kind of hinting at it constantly throughout this whole work, is there's no way to save everyone. There's no way to help everyone. There's no way to please everyone. There's simply too many people, too many organizations, too many concepts that are mutually exclusive. They simply can compete direct fierce competition between each other to the point where there cannot be a middle ground between them. And ergo, you have to choose. You can't help everyone. This is what Aethys does in this game. He decides, this is the most good I can do. So this is the thing I'm going to do. And he goes out of his way to do it knowing that he is causing harm, knowing that he is hurting people, knowing that he is killing people, and doing it anyways. Because it is the least bad thing that he can do. And this is the same choice that's placed in the player's lap. What do you do? Who do you support? Who do you help? If I'm not mistaken, I think it's actually impossible to keep all seven party members I just mentioned in the party by the end of the game. I am almost certain. I think the uh, the only thing I can think of off the top of my head is if you had really high relationship values with all of them, all, especially the really big ones who leave, like Pelagina and Maya and, uh, and Takehu, and you decided to not back anyone and just kind of decided to go to the end game without actually backing an organization at all, which is kind of cheating because you're basically bypassing a quest at that point. That's the only way I can think of to avoid losing at least one party member. I could be wrong. This game has a lot of things to do. Like I said, this is a game that's meant to be played like five or six times. But no matter what you do, not all of your party members will have a happy ending. And not all the organizations will have a happy ending which means not a lot of people will have a happy ending, just like none of the, not all the golems will have a happy ending. And you get the general gist of this. And of course, what I really love about this idea is that it's presented both intangibly with regards to the politics and, and the ideas and the ideologies, and the tangible with the literal deaths of people and the usages of their souls and what actually becomes of who prospers and where. And this marriage of these two ideas makes this game... Amazing. I really, really like this game, if it's not obvious. And the fact that I just talked for I don't know how long off of, like, ten bullet points, most of which were just the names of the deities, so I didn't forget them. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this excellent, excellent game. I'll see you next time, guys.